what is your philosophy of work? And how do you feel about that? Is work, in your view, just this necessary evil to put food on the table? Is it simply something you have to do? Do you view your work as a drudgery, something you have to go to every single day? Or maybe you're one of those people who watch the clock. You know, have you seen the clock watchers who just literally from about an hour after they arrive start watching the clock all day long? Do you see your work as this horrible price you have to pay until the day when you can finally, finally retire and do some real living, for goodness sakes? Listen, anything in your life that you're spending 40 or more hours a week at, you'd better have the most positive view of it you possibly can, or otherwise, it's going to be this really meaningless, mundane experience. And you're going to feel like you're wasting your life. So the question we explore today is, how does God want us to view our work? Well, according to God's word, work is not a result of the fall. You know, we're living with so many things today that are a result of the fall of humankind. But the truth is, God had given Adam meaningful work to do before the fall ever occurred. We often go to Genesis chapter 3 to look at the results of the fall. And we read here in Genesis 3, starting in verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, get this part now, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. You were taken from the ground, he says here. And then he goes on, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So as we see from that passage, the curse is not work. The curse is yard work. <laughs> really, seriously, the curse is not work, folks. The curse, according to this, is that work would now involve sweat and pain and frustration. But before that, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we see the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So please get the point here. God gave Adam meaningful and fulfilling work to do before the fall ever took place. In other words, before sin ever entered into the human experience. So God's design, God's purpose for humans, even before they sinned, is that they would work and apply their intellect, their abilities, their skills, to various work projects. So a part of God's creative purpose for Adam is that he would work. And even before that, if you go back even earlier than these verses we've read, Genesis 2, verse 2 says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Do you see that? 
God was working. And that in and of itself dignifies work. The curse simply added painful toil to the divine privilege of working. Work was meant to be one of the many ways that we serve and honor God. And any motive, any motive, by the way, less than that, strips work of its true meaning. Now, with that as an introduction, let's look today at this passage we come up to in the book of Colossians chapter 3. If you've been with us for these weeks, this fall, you know that we've been working our way verse by verse through Paul's epistle, through this letter that he sent to the church at Colossae. And so today, chapter 3, starting in verse 22, we read the following words. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And then he says, anyone who does wrong will be paid for his wrong, and there's no favoritism. And then verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, what is the recurring theme that runs through those verses we read. Five times he actually said that it is to the Lord or it is about the Lord. Now, why did he do that? Because work is actually a divine exercise. It's actually a spiritual activity. Work can be meaningful and it brings honor to God. It's more than a utilitarian function that just puts food on our table and help society function. According to Paul in today's passage, no matter what your station in life is, your work should be viewed as a way to serve and honor God. Now, let's address the elephant in the room. If you've never read this passage before, you were probably shocked that the Bible talks about slaves and masters, but it does. And the Greek word found in that text, doulos, can be rightly translated servant, which it may be in some of your translations. It can be translated bondservant, but it can also legitimately be translated as slave. And you need to know the practice of slavery was ubiquitous in the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus and the early church. So here's the question. Why did not Paul speak out boldly against slavery. It's obviously a horrendous evil. Why didn't Paul make the abolition of slavery his number one agenda? As some other Christians did later, like William Wilberforce in the early 1800s. I mean, come on. Scholars say that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. That was as much as half of the population. So why? Why wasn't his number one agenda 
to abolish it. Now, please listen carefully. Slavery was as abhorrent to the Apostle Paul as it is to us. Because when he later wrote in 1 Timothy, that's another book in your Bible called 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he lists there a catalog of wicked people, people who are engrossed in all kinds of horrible kinds of sin. And listen to what he says here in 1 Timothy 1. He says, we also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. And then he gets more specific. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, I'd say it's pretty evil, wouldn't you? For murderers, for adulterers and perverts, and catch this part now, for slave traders, traders and liars and perjurers. Paul was very clear about the evils of the practice of slave trading. But here in Colossians 3 that we're reading today, his purpose is not to give a social commentary about the rights or wrongs of slavery. He is addressing himself strictly in this passage, strictly to Christians in the station in which they found themselves in life. And here was the dilemma. How in the world does a Christian live as a slave when slavery is so obviously wrong? By the way, did you know Paul addressed that very issue in his letter to the Corinthian church we call 1 Corinthians? In chapter 7, starting in verse 20, he says, Each one of you should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called by the Lord? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord, Lord's freed man. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. Now think about this. You might have expected Paul to say there, wow, slaves, assert your independence. Go on strike. Refuse to work under those horrible conditions because it's so unfair and so inhumane. And he would have been absolutely right if he had said that. Start a movement, free everyone, and abolish this detestable practice. We wish he had said things like that, don't we? But that would have been far beyond the scope of his purpose here in this particular letter. So let's be clear. In saying what he's saying here, Paul is in no way endorsing slavery in any shape or form. He is simply trying to challenge everyone in the church at Colossae to see their work life as a way to witness for Christ and serve him for his glory. Now, why is this message today so relevant to us? Here's why I believe it is so pertinent to our lives right now. Because some of you are in a job that you greatly dislike and you don't feel like you have many legitimate options. In fact, you've said it. You've often said, I hate my job. Haven't you said that? Of course you have. But right now, you may not have a better option, but you don't know what to do. So do you change your work or do you change your perspective on your work? Others of you listening to me right now, 
are being discriminated against in your workplace. You deserve a promotion, but you didn't get it. You deserve a compensation increase, but you're stuck. You're stuck on this rung of the corporate ladder with no place to go. Others of you have even more serious problems at work. You are victims of prejudice and bullying, even though your company has a policy against it, by the way. You are victims of injustice, and you're afraid that if you act, it may even get worse, so you don't know what to do. Some of you have a boss, (laughs) and it is really, really clear that she does not like you, but that's okay, because you don't like her either, quite frankly, and she has this power, and you feel that every day, that your, your future, your future is in her hands, but you don't trust her character, that she's going to treat you fairly. And furthermore, because of your boss's attitude day by day, life in the office is just difficult, isn't it? Most of the time, it's just miserable. And so you feel if we're being honest, you feel this resentment growing in your heart. Now, if you, in case you're wondering, I'm getting every one of these situations that I just raised from real conversations I've had with people at Grace. Notice I didn't name any names, but every one of these situations is a conversation I've had with people at Grace through the years. And I could add my own miserable work experience to this, by the way. If you want to talk miserable jobs, boy, I've had some. I had one job years ago, (coughs) excuse me, as a graduate student, loading boxes into shipping containers. And the goal, this was the goal they made clear, you had to move 30 boxes a minute. That's two boxes, excuse me, a box every two seconds. One box every two seconds. Try that sometime. It's not easy. So I and the three or four other guys who worked alongside of me would be working literally with sweat dripping off of our chins, soaked through our clothes with the boss, I do not exaggerate, literally standing over us and cursing us and demeaning our character. I don't know how he got away with that. I don't know why he was, never was reprimanded or challenged, but that is literally what he did day in and day out. So I know about some miserable work situations. So what do you do? What do you do when you find yourself in these kinds of work dilemmas? You've got to get the attitude. You've got to get the mentality that you are not serving an earthly boss or overseer. You are serving the Lord. It all comes down, folks, to who you're working for. And that's why I've called today's message, by the way, Christ, the one for whom I work. And so I wanna put it to you bluntly. If you're working for anyone but the Lord, you're in trouble. If you're working for anyone but the Lord, You're in trouble. That's why in verse 23, Paul puts it so clearly. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for people. And then he says in verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Notice that phrase, so important. 
serving the Lord. Now, within the Christian community, we throw that phrase around. It's kind of become Christianese for us. We'll say of somebody who's in vocational ministry, he's serving the Lord. They went to the mission field and they're serving the Lord. But technically, every true Christ follower is serving the Lord, whatever vocation they have. What is your vocation? If you're doing it in the name of Christ as his ambassador, you're serving the Lord. Are you fixing teeth? Are you practicing medicine? Are you building houses on a construction crew? Are you fighting fires with a local team? Are you doing landscaping, cutting hair, teaching school, practicing law, flying airplanes, being an Uber driver for Jesus? Hallelujah. I mean, whatever your vocation is on earth, if it's moral and legal, you should be able to do it as a full-time vocation serving the Lord. Whatever situation you find yourself in, trust me, you can serve the Lord through that situation. Now, brothers and sisters, I hope you are sensing how significant this is. I'm going to say something right now that will shock many of you, I believe, but I stand by this statement. Very few people should work for churches vocationally. Yeah, you're hearing me right. Very few people should earn their living by working for churches or parachurch organizations or traditional ministry roles. Very few, I'm convinced, should do that. But every true Christ follower should seek to serve the Lord through whatever vocation they have. And if you're doing it for the Lord, that makes it sacred. Yes, that makes it sacred. Now, what if you're the employer? What if you're the owner of the company or the one with the power and the clout in this situation? What should you do? Well, according to today's passage, you should treat your employees with respect and dignity and fairness, remembering that you also have a master in heaven. And this brings us to what? to me, is the most exciting part of this whole passage today. Here's the most exciting part to me. When a Christian, whoever they are, understands what Paul is saying and works at whatever they do for the Lord and not for any human supervisor, guess what? Ooh, this is good. Listen in right now. You have two benefits packages. One of your paychecks gets deposited in your bank account in terms of dollars, but the other one is laid up in heaven for you. It's like a heavenly IRA. And when you serve wholeheartedly as for the Lord, not for people, you're just accruing benefits at heaven at a profound interest rate. I really like that. Two benefits packages. So we look at it again. Colossians 3, where he says here in verse 23, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, slaves in the Roman Empire typically had no inheritance whatsoever. 
But God says, no matter how miserable your job, no matter how badly you detest your job, when you're doing your work as working for the Lord, you get a big paycheck, a big inheritance for that. It's going to be waiting for you in heaven. Now, let me ask you, let me ask you, is that the frame of mind? Is that the attitude with which you go to work every day? I hope it is. Because that place of work where you are now may be the exact mission field to which God has called you. And the question is, are you willing to say, Lord, I am available to serve you in my workplace and through my workplace in your name? Now, I want to be very clear on one thing. This does not mean that as Christians we take advantage of our employers or our companies. Oh, I've, I've met some Christians who, who wear it, who wear it like a badge of honor that they just waste time at work going around and they chat about Jesus and about their Christian music or about an article they read. They just talk about their church at the workplace all the time. Frankly, if you're doing that on work time, that is unethical. Now, some of you, if not most of you, are in work environments where that would be completely inappropriate to explicitly talk about Christ in your workplace. Now, don't, don't be having a meltdown over that. Don't be having a little fit over that. If God has placed you there, see it as his divine mission field for you. Open your eyes to opportunities and ways you can represent your Lord well in and through your job. He will guide you and give you some good answers. But make no mistake about this. God uses all kinds of people in all kinds of work environments to accomplish his will in this world. The Bible is full of examples of what I'm saying. He used Daniel in that way. Think about it. Daniel was captured as a young man by the Babylonians, carried away against his will to a foreign land. But instead of having a meltdown and say, I can't serve the Lord in this pagan environment, Daniel saw his work as an assignment from Almighty God. He did his secular job mind you, so well as a senior civil servant in Babylon that he was the means of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king of the Babylonian empire, becoming a believer in the Lord. In fact, if you doubt this, what I'm saying, read Daniel chapter four. Daniel chapter four is like a track. It's like a pamphlet giving King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, and it was distributed throughout the whole Babylonian kingdom, basically with this message on it. The God of Daniel is the true God, and he's become my God as well. Read it sometime. It's amazing. And God used Daniel as a witness in that process. One of the most dramatic testimonies in the Bible, it came about because Daniel saw his workplace as a way to serve the Lord and not people. I, I believe that some of you listening to me right now may be a bit like Esther in the Bible. You know, it's, it's a pretty provocative and even bizarre story, but Esther, this Jewish woman who was very physically beautiful, 
uses her natural beauty. She wins a beauty contest, and the first prize is to be queen of Persia. So she finds herself, get this now, living in the palace in this very privileged position, but everything around her is contrary to her values and beliefs. You ever felt that in your workplace? But there's this hateful man named Haman who's plotting to wipe out the entire Jewish population, much as Hitler did in the 20th century. And Esther becomes aware of his sinister plot, and she's put in a dilemma. We often get put in dilemmas, by the way, when we're living in a culture or in a country or in a workplace where we feel like aliens because of the values there. So what's she going to do? Is Esther going to speak up and possibly lose her position and even her life? Or does she remain silent and play it safe? What's she going to do? And Mordecai, oh Mordecai, what a guy. He comes to her, he's her uncle, and he challenges her that perhaps she's been elevated to this exalted place in the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Esther decides courageously to speak up, and she reveals the plot to the king, saying, if I perish, I perish. Wow, we need courage. Wow, we need tenacity and courage like that today. And Esther, through these bizarre circumstances, becomes God's instrument. This is amazing for the saving of the entire Jewish nation from extermination. And perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps God has brought you to your workplace for such a time as this, and he wants to use you as his instrument there. Or some of you, oh, there's so many stories. Some of you may be in a position like Obadiah, If you read the old, there's actually a little book. It's got 21 verses in it, and it's called Obadiah. But his story is incredible. He's this godly man. He's described as a devout believer in the Lord. The only problem, here we go again, it's deja vu all over again. This godly man has to work for the wicked queen Jezebel and her pathetic husband Ahab. You think you've got a bad work environment? How would you like working for Jezebel? Folks, there's no other way to say it. Jezebel hated God. She just hated Obadiah's God. And she was determined to destroy all of God's prophets who were alive in her day. She wanted to rid the earth of them because she hated the truth they were proclaiming. And she hated the fact that they would always point out the right way to go, and she knew she wasn't on that path. But Obadiah, get this, because he worked in her household. You talk about a guy who hated his job. I mean, that had to be the worst job in the world. Obadiah has inside knowledge of her devious plot to destroy God's prophets. So guess what? Obadiah, just like Esther, acts courageously and decisively, and he hides 50 of the prophets in one cave, 50 in another, and because of his action, all of them, all of them escaped Jezebel's intended massacre. And what about you? Perhaps you, like Obadiah, are in the right place. You're the right person at just the right time with just the right knowledge. 
And God put you there. And like Obadiah, you are there for a divine purpose. But here's my question. Have you opened your eyes? Have you opened your eyes? Have you opened your heart for the opportunities and the things God might want to do through you? Oh, I got to mention one more. This is one of my favorites. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 5. There's this little servant girl. We do not even know her name, folks. But she's probably big in heaven. And she's serving in the house of the commander of the army of the king of Aram. The commander's name is a man, he's a man named Naaman. There's this one problem. Naaman has the dreaded disease of leprosy. And so this servant girl, whose name we don't even know, says to Naaman's wife, you know, I, I think your husband should consider going to Israel and checking out this prophet there. His name is Elisha, okay? Now, he's a little unusual. I trust me on this. He's unusual, but, but he's the real deal. And she said, I'll bet if he did that, I'll bet he would be healed of his leprosy. Naaman eventually humbled himself enough to follow that servant girl's lead, and he was miraculously healed. And not only that, afterward, Naaman says, now I know that there is no other God in all the world except in Israel. Why? All because a little servant girl working in his family home was working for the Lord and not for people. Hear me, the Bible's filled with all kinds of stories of ordinary people that saw their workplace as their mission field. Is that you? God will open doors you never dreamed of and you can walk through them and serve his purposes right there in the workplace. The Bible's full of stories like that. And God helped them flourish in spite of the bad environment they were around. And God did awesome things through them. Can you see yourself doing that? No matter where you are on the org chart, you can do this. The workplace is literally your mission field if, if you choose to accept it. Now, in just a moment, we're going to pray together, uh, just, just briefly. But right now, before we do, I, I want to give you a few moments of silence, and we're, we're not going to take long with the silence. Silence makes most of us really uncomfortable. I know that. But here's my challenge. Here's my challenge to you. If God has given you ears to hear today, in just a moment, when we have these 20 or 30 seconds of silence, I urge you to say in your soul to the Lord, I want to get a different perspective on my work, Lord. I want to see it, I want to see it as a place where you've sovereignly put me on mission for you. And, and here, here's the hardest part of all, if you dare to take this challenge, would you say to the Lord, I accept that mission. I will be your agent in my workplace. I accept this assignment. I surrender myself to you for your purposes right there in my workplace. That's my challenge to you, to pray on your own, on your own, right where you are, in just a moment.
And then after we've had that brief time of silence while you're praying on your own, right where you are, then if you've been bold enough to pray that prayer or something along those lines, then I'm going to ask you to stand at that time, not yet, but at that time, and then I'm going to pray a final commissioning prayer over you. Now, here's here's the guidelines. When we get to that point, it doesn't matter to me if everyone stands or if only one or two stands. It doesn't matter at all to me. I just want it to be real. I want it to be truthful. Please do not stand at that time if you do not mean it, okay? Those are the guidelines, all right? So are you ready to pray? You're going to pray on your own first, seated right where you are. Let's go to God now in prayer in this moment of silence, and you commit your workplace to him. Let's pray. Hear our prayers, O Lord, because we pray them in Jesus' name. Now, let me have your attention for just another moment here. I believe that many of you, perhaps dozens, perhaps scores of you, prayed that prayer sincerely. You genuinely meant business with God. And here's one other thing I'm going to ask you to do. If you prayed that prayer today, and just like Esther, and just like Daniel, and Obadiah, and that unnamed servant girl, If you have chosen today to commit your workplace to the Lord and be his ambassador there, say, Lord, I don't know what that's going to mean, but I just want to represent you well as your agent in the workplace. I'm on mission for you there. If you pray, if you had the courage and it took courage to pray that prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet boldly right now and just remain standing for a moment or two. Do not stand. Do not stand if you don't mean this. Do not stand if it's not truthful. At Saratoga, at Half Moon, at Latham, just stand to your feet right now, and I want to pray a prayer of commissioning over you as we close today. Everybody who meant that, everybody who prayed that prayer, just go ahead and stand to your feet right now. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, you see these servants of you, yours. They want to do whatever they do with all their heart as to the Lord and not for people. God bless you for standing today. God bless you for the courage to make that commitment. I want to pray this final prayer, this final prayer as we wrap up today. Father, you see these amazing servants of yours. They have a heart like Esther, like a Daniel. They have a heart like an Obadiah who acted courageously, a heart like that servant girl to speak up, help them to have wisdom, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Father, I ask that they would represent you so well that people would know something's different here and it's positive and it's good and people would be hungry and thirsty for what they have, a relationship with you, the living God. So I ask that you would empower them by your spirit as they 
take it to the streets, as they take it to the workplace, as they see their workplace as a mission field. Lord, I pray for you to do amazing things as only you can do. And we pray it all in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen.